Hello and welcome to Polity Matters. This is episode two of BYOBCO. My name is Ben Ratliff and I am joined by Scott Edberg and Jared Nelson. Uh, Today we are continuing the discussion that we began last week on the preface of the PCA Book of Church Order. That first section we discussed is called The King and Head of the Church. And we we discussed and went through um, that it establishes the regulative principle of polity. You know, that that truth that we are Presbyterian because our king commands that we be so. Um, And it's summed up well in the title of Guy Waters' book. um, Right, It's not how we run the church, but it's how Jesus runs the church. And today we're going to embark on our journey through the the next part of the preface, part two, called The Preliminary Principles. Uh, But before we do that, we have a guest. Uh, Jared, why don't you uh, introduce our ride-along companion? Yes, so um, our other voice that you're going to be hearing today is that of Steve Tipton. Uh, He was somebody that I mentioned actually last time as one of the people that I used to watch, it seemed to know what he was actually doing polity-wise. Um, and he is used to be in our Presbytery and Ascension, was moderator there. Uh, he's been in RPR, which is Review of Presbytery Records, um, has been uh, even chairing that, and has uh, even at one time been up front at General Assembly as an assistant parliamentarian. So I thought that he could help us along uh, with a little bit of this, but uh, also thought maybe, Steve, you could just give us a brief introduction to you. And uh, when did you get interested in Presbyterian polity? Yeah, well, thanks guys for having me on. That was a very generous introduction by Jared. I wasn't really sure I, recon- I recognized myself there in some of that. I was raised Southern Baptist. I was not a Christian at the time. I, I mean, I wasn't a believer at the time, but you know, belonged to a Southern Baptist church. And so I got to see kind of congregational polity and uh, all of it, you know, expediency and able to do certain things quickly. Uh, but also from time to time saw some of the negative sides of, of that polity. I mean, really didn't understand it at the time, but you know, kind of looking back, seeing some of the things that can happen uh, in in congregationalism. When I met my my wife, she grew up Presbyterian. She grew up in the PCUSA. And so um, when we got married and we're going to church with her, I was going to her, got to see a, a very different side of, of, of again, church polity, not not knowing those terms or ways of understanding things. Got, came to a, an appreciation, certainly for Reformed theology through that, but not so much on the polity side, just, you know, it, it's kind of more of an advanced level than, than just the theology piece. But I felt called to ministry, and uh, we eventually moved from the PCUSA to the PCA uh, while I was still doing my undergraduate work in California. And uh, then eventually went to uh, RTS in Jackson. And I think it was just, you know, sometimes it's, it's the friends that you make. And so I got to know Guy Waters pretty well. Uh, we both, I think it was the same year. We started the same year there. Obviously, he was teaching and I was a student, um, but uh, just got to know him a little bit and really appreciated his insight into polity issues, took polity from uh, from Guy, and he's been a, a friend of mine ever since. But really, I think it, it started in uh, maybe the second year I was in Ascension, uh, Jared, maybe about the same time we got there. There was a, we had a representative to go to RPR, Review of Presbyterian Records, who couldn't go because of scheduling issues. And uh, that individual was my one of my ruling elders, and so he encouraged me to take his spot. Uh, it really was sort of baptism by fire, trying to figure out, uh, you know, what was going on and what all these people were talking about. And I, I think maybe that was really what got me interested in the polity of the church is digging through and, and seeing kind of how the sausage is made. I guess it's it's going to do one of two things. You're either going to hate sausage forever 
uh, or that's all you want is more sausage. So I'm one of the more sausage guys. I just, I, I really, really enjoyed it and have been back a number of times and, and just wanted to learn more about our BCO and how, how it worked. I've read uh, quite a bit, uh, not as extensively as, as some, but, but probably more than most perhaps in uh, our, you know, polity ecclesiology type things uh, and just have continued to enjoy that aspect of what it means to be a Presbyterian. I know the listeners can't really get a sense for this without seeing us, but the the aura at play with three RTS Jackson grads on the same screen is is unbelievable. Well, if if you're following along, if you've pulled up the BCO and you're able to look at the preface with us, you'll see that in in preface two, just before the preliminary principles uh, begin to get listed, there's sort of a what we're calling a preamble. Since that's where it starts, we're going to start there too and just work our way through. Uh, this document and and we've uh, we have some thoughts for you as we discuss. So the the beginning, the preamble, uh, goes like this: the Presbyterian Church in America, in setting forth the form of government founded upon and agreeable to the Word of God, reiterates the following great principles which have governed the formation of the plan. And I was wondering, Jared, if you could start us off here, maybe explain a little bit about the source of these principles that are about to follow. Yeah, these. Preliminary principles are not universal in every single Presbyterian church that you'll find even in America, but they did begin in America. They were fixed to the form of government in 1788, and uh, eventually they get lost in the Southern Presbyterian Church for some reason. They they no longer become part of their constitution, and then the um, the PCA discovered them again, I guess, in the attic, and then reaffixed them to the beginning. These were written when this was going to be a Presbyterian church in America. It's not in the colonies anymore. Uh, They were coming into their own. They were uh, revising even the constitution in chapter 20 and 23, especially of the Westminster Standards. And it's at least kind of, I don't know if it's about legend or just one person at least had had said, this guy, uh, Ashbel Green, uh, that John Witherspoon was the guy that actually came up with him. He was on the committee and may have actually uh, coined them all uh, and wrote these as as kind of the, the the background, the foundations of the entirety of what follows later. So I, I don't know if you would really call them like the Bill of Rights to the, the BCO um, because they don't quite function that way. You can't really like get things overturned. I don't think in the rest of the BCO, if you uh, appeal to them, it doesn't quite work that way. Everything really should be seen in light of these. And it gives us a, a basis for if we're going to add or subtract to it, do they fit with the preliminary principles or uh, do they undermine them? Uh, which can also lead to some interesting uh, questions later if we have parts of our BCO that may seem not to go with that uh, do they actually align or do they not? Maybe we can talk a little bit more about that uh, uh, later. Scott, why why are the principles needed? Well, I, I was thinking through that question and I started going down the, the rabbit hole with other constitutions. And so I don't know if you know this, but you can, you can buy the RPCNA uh, Book of Church Order for free on their website. I don't know why they make you buy it, but you have to go through all of that. And so I was looking through other constitutions, wondering just the the wide, uh, how wide the application for using preliminary principles were within the Reformed world. And I I, I found uh, not many denominations use them, at least how we use them. There's no preliminary, some of the content is used elsewhere, like in the OPC, the URCNA, and the RPCNA, but there's not many denominations even today that have a guiding principle set that we do. 
the importance for that is that, that they remind us uh, as we are amending the Constitution and following the Constitution, uh, the foundation of the Constitution. And so you'll hear throughout the assembly um, and throughout the various committees as they do their work, appeals to the preliminary pen principles. The CCB will often say that we cannot pass this, uh, though CCB is sometimes ignored. We cannot pass this because it violates uh, PP1, pre preliminary print one. And so it, it's a good framework for thinking about what holds together or what we seek to hold together our constitution. Um, but I, I maybe have a question why to the, the broader group, maybe even to Steve, how do denominations function without preliminary principles as it relates to their constitution? Yeah, I, I don't know how necessarily they, they function without it. I mean, imagine in the same way we would if we just took them out. I mean, you still have a BCO that's, that has all the provisions for all the things that you do. You know, not having it wouldn't necessarily be in that sense a detriment. I mean, clearly their polity is based upon the principles that are in the preliminary principles, whether they, whether they believe it, it is or not to some degree or other. But I do think that part of this is Presbyterian history, and there are many people who are much better to get on to talk about the history of Presbyterian in the United States. But, th but there are you know, many different kind of streams and rivulets that come out of whether it's Scotland, Ireland, different times in Scotland. I would say that these preliminary principles, having been, assuming that they were, penned by Witherspoon so early on, that they're going to be more attached to kind of American Presbyterianism. So, for instance, like the ARP, it shouldn't be surprising the ARP wouldn't have them because they are an associate, you know, the Associate Presbyterian Church and the Reformed Presbyterian Church. They came over, you know, later on. And so they're going to adopt a more Scottish form, whereas in some ways those preliminary principles were an attempt to Maybe do two things, right? To, to reach back into established uh, Presbyterian principles, but also to have a this this could be misunderstood like a uniquely American form. I mean, again, it's not entirely unique; it's not entirely separate. But things like you know uh, the the division between the state power and church power and how those things work in our principles are are a little different than what our Scottish forefathers believed and and argued for. And so I think in that sense. They were an opportunity to kind of draw a line in the sand, and again, that that analogy can also be missed. But uh, to, to draw a line somewhere and say, okay, you know, the, these are the principles upon which American Presbyterian, this particular way of doing Presbyterianism, is going to be established and followed. And if, if my memory serves, I'm looking on the PCA historical site. I think they were originally adopted by the OPC. But then somehow they dropped out of their BCO. And that may just be an editorial issue more than anything else. Uh, even in the PCUF, they, they dropped out fairly early on, uh, you know, long before liberalism had become a problem in the PCUF. It, it wasn't a liberal move to reject or whether you want to call it reject or just remove the, the preliminary principles. I think we can say it's a mark of proper Presbyterianism to have them. Rather, as a continuing church, we have seen the wisdom and the importance of having those principles in our Book of Church order and seeking, maybe not always succeeding, but seeking to build, to form our government on that foundation. Can you think of a time perhaps in the PCA's history where a BCO amendment has been added to our constitution that violated one of these principles? 
No, no, no. I, um, I, I, but I do think that the, the, the principles are broad enough and are foundational in nature so that in one sense, I think it would be very difficult for us to pass an overture that would directly contradict a preliminary principle. It's really hard to do that. Now, there have been uh, times where phrases could be in to be in conflict with the preliminary principle. Usually, uh, I don't have them enumerated in front of me, and I don't have them memorized either. Uh, but you know, the one that talks about uh, the congregation electing officers, and there have been some things that have been tried in the past that, that I don't think were done maliciously to remove that principle, but just not well thought out so that the, the an action that could be taken by a presbytery would in fact violate that principle. And so in my memory, those things going through overtures, they get either amended very easily or they just get defeated because or sent back to the presbytery or whatever, especially overtures that committee, there is a sincere desire to not uh, violate those preliminary principles. Well, one other thing uh, we probably should uh, ask is, why are we doing the preliminary principles? Uh, How is it significant? And I I wonder if um, uh, Steve would still have this. I remember telling you the the story of uh, having the question during one of my, uh, I think it was during my licensure exam. They asked me, what is the most important part of the BCO? And uh, I said, well, I don't know. And the guy answered, the index and I remember telling you that story, and then you remember what your reply was, right? Probably, you know, something like that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, I mean, okay, indexes are, are really important. Actually, um, I never use my index because I have my BCO on my iPad, and I just search for things. But that, you know, maybe that's the, the search function now becomes the most important part. If we're going to say that our polity is built upon biblical principles, and if it isn't built upon biblical principles, then what's the point of having, you know, what's the point of following it? it just to say it's better or wiser or more convenient in some other way. If we, if we believe that our polity is built upon biblical principles, then it would be helpful to have a place where we talk about what those principles are. And, uh, you know, certainly we are not exhausting those biblical principles in the, in the preliminary principles. But it's important to recognize what principles are. In one sense, the, the preliminary principles, I, I would say, sort of act like prolegomena in a theological system. You know, prolegomena is usually not most people's favorite part of theology, but it's incredibly important because it, it, it sets out, you know, the definitions of the terms that we're going to be talking about. It sets out, you know, the direction, the limit of those terms. It, it, it provides the ground, particularly prolegomenous where you talk about, you know, scripture as the, that principle of the theology itself. And, and you know, what, what is the scope of your theology, or in our case, you know, what is the scope of your polity? And so, I mean, I, I would argue that the preliminary principles are the most important part of the BCO, that, that if you don't understand them, if you're not, if you're not conversant in the ideas that they talk about, again, you don't have to memorize them, but if you're not conversant in those concepts, then ultimately your polity becomes a function of uh, just human wisdom. Uh, and we, we understand from our Westminster Confession of Faith that there are you know, circumstances of church government that are common to human society. And, you know, they're guided by the light of nature, they're guided by Christian prudence, and they're always to be in conformity with the Word of God. But without preliminary principles, I think more and more of our polity, more and more common notions, per se, are going to encroach upon our our, our polity. And we're not, 
drawing it back consistently to our understanding of what Scripture says and what Scripture did. And, and these, these principles do that. They also, they don't just tie us back to Scripture, but they tie us back to the confession's interpretation of Scripture. I mean, preliminary principle one, which I imagine we'll be looking at in just a second, um, is, is very much kind of an amalgam just of different places in the confession, drawing them together and placing them and reminding us of their importance for polity. You know, I, I would certainly encourage people to study them, to think about them, and to understand their importance, their place, and and to, to seek to, in some sense, interpret uh, the, the BCO in light of them. I think that, you know, we have to be careful. BCO 17.2, whatever that is, um, means what it says, right? It, it doesn't mean what it says as interpreted through the lens of some other document or some other place in the BCO. Uh, it means what it means as it's written there, but it is built upon a foundation that comes from the preliminary principles. And so I, I don't think they stand like a Bill of Rights or something that can, you know, change, alter uh, what comes after it. And so if we're to find in our study of the BCO that there's a provision that violate, clearly violate a preliminary principle, there's no way to interpret that in light of a preliminary principle, because it's in violation of it. It needs to be changed. It needs to be updated, altered, or removed, or whatever. I think that there's a sense in which we can we can move beyond the way these two pieces are actually put together, preliminary principles on one hand, and then the actual uh, provisions on the other. Well, we're all eager to move along to the first of these principles. And since all of you are probably s- scrambling to find your BCO, uh, 17.2 is actually the definition of the doctrine of ordination. So uh, you can save yourself some time. Here's preliminary principle number one. God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from any doctrines or commandments of men, A, which are in any respect contrary to the word of God, or B, which in regard to matters of faith and worship are not governed by the word of God. Therefore, the rights of private judgment in all matters that respect religion are universal and inalienable. No religious constitution should be supported by the civil power further than may be necessary for protection and security equal and common to all others. Steve, we've heard a lot from you, but I do want you to begin this one for us. What does it mean there that that it, God alone is Lord of the conscience? Yeah. So, I mean, again, it's establishing a, a principle that it's, or I guess it's not establishing a principle, it's borrowing a principle from uh, our Westminster Confession of Faith uh, 21, if I remember correctly, that makes reference to the idea that God alone is Lord of conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men and, and uses very similar language as it follows. And the idea that is that is, that the confession is seeking to discuss and, and to give uh, to give words to, and that our preliminary principles have, have uh, attached onto, the idea is, is that no one other than God, no one other than Christ, ultimately is, is is Lord of our conscience. And so, a church or the state, for that matter, cannot create you know doctrines. They cannot create commandments for us to follow um, if they are. If they are in any respect contrary to the word of God, then they are, you know, beyond what God has said. So we cannot, as a church, we cannot require people to believe things other than what God has uh, directed us and given us into His word. We can't tell people to do things. We can't re- require a duty of them, not uh, 
also found in God's Word. And certainly you think about faith and worship, right? Again, we cannot require someone to believe thing that, that we don't have recourse to the Bible, and our worship is regulated, is governed by the Word of God, not by the doctrines and commandments. And so we, we talk about the idea of the right of, of private judgment uh, is, is another important piece of this, and it, it is not denying the fact that, that God is, is Lord of the conscience, that, that there is no other Lord of how I am to understand whether it's faith or practice and practice in, in a variety of ways, whether it's worship in particular, church polity or any other thing, there's no other guide to faith and practice than is the word of God. And that word is the Lord's word, and he is the one who rules and reigns in the hearts and the consciences of men. And so no one else can can take that role of being the Lord of someone's conscience. Any Any thoughts on that middle portion, especially when we get to the A and B about respecting um, God's word, uh, the, the issue of matters of faith and worship. Maybe you guys want to distinguish between those uh, and walk us through. Well, I, I've done, I had to stop myself from becoming a covenanter this week as I read Bannerman on, on this issue because he would have A, B, and C on this. He would have uh, that there are limits to the Christian's conscience, liberty of conscience as it relates to the word of God, as we've referenced here in faith and worship, but then he would also include the ordinance of civil authority, and so that the magistrate himself has um, some responsibility in in the life of not only the church, but society itself with regards to uh, what the church um, believes, but also um, practices. I, I think uh, most poignantly, it deals with, um, in, at least in Bannerman, the idea of how the the state itself legislates um, certain and criminalizes certain activities, whether they be heresy or blasphemy. Um, that's not really applicable to the American context. And so I think that's part of the preliminary principle one for us is at the end there, it sidesteps uh, the civil authority as uh, as how Bannerman would outline. But the first the first two points, A and B, are 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 very historical um, to Presbyterianism. Uh, Bannerman says on on the first A, uh, the first limit then sets the right of conscience is the obligation to the law of God, the divine law. There cannot be a more dangerous tenet than that which, under the plea of liberty of conscience, expressly or virtually denies this limitation. And what that's getting at is that we do not have the liberty. Uh, to do what is morally wrong. Um, we hear perhaps in our own culture and day and age where it's everyone appeals to liberty for everything. Uh, I have Christian liberty to do this, that, or the other thing, but there is a limit, and that limit is God's law. God, as Steve said, is the Lord of the conscience. We have no liberty to disobey him and the law that he's given to us. Uh, and then B, maybe in, there's a limit to this, a limit to the limit, uh, but also than the ecclesiastical um, authority that is over you and you, as we'll get to one of the other preliminary principles, the membership within the church. Uh, what does that look like? Uh, what do we submit to? Where are the limits, perhaps, of our um, relationship um, with our own congregations? A good example could perhaps be, what what do we allow within our congregation to be believed or even talked about? Maybe things like pedo communion or baptismal regeneration or federal vision. Do you have the liberty of conscience to 
we'll leave those things within the context of this congregation and teach that. Well, maybe there's a limit there. And so there's a limiting factor. We don't have unlimited freedom and liberty to believe whatever we want as it relates um, to the church and God. Uh, there, are li- there are great limits on uh, the church particularly, but we have no uh, liberty to disobey the, the Lord, the Lord himself. Yeah, I think one thing that, that Bannerman talked about, which is also very helpful along that same line, is the idea that, uh, and obviously he's echoing language of the confession anyway, but it's this idea that you know, the Lord who is Lord of conscience is the same Lord who has established the civil magistrate and uh, the, you know, the church as an ecclesiastical power. Um, and so he has ordained both the civil authority and the ecclesiastical authority and even our confession talks about, you know, this idea of disobeying these lawful authorities in matters that are not faith and worship is, you know, under the guise of liberty is 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 to sin against that liberty, to sin against that conscience. And so uh, I think those are important points, especially in an American context where, you know, very much the, the spirit of vigilism and I get to do what I want and nobody can tell me what I can't do. And the the civil magistrate, even as much as we might disagree with it, it is still ordained by the Lord and the, the lawful injunction of the civil magistrate, right? We can't in good conscience deny the right of the civil magistrate to, to, to enact laws. And we can't, as long as they're not requiring us to sin, we can't disobey, right? Just because we don't like them or because we don't like people telling us what to do. And so in a similar way, obviously, there are differences between civil power and ecclesiastical power uh, where the church has authority to uh, to do the things that it does, obviously, ministerial and declarative. Uh, the, a, a person cannot plead liberty of conscience to ignore or to deny the, the lawful ordinances of ecclesiastical authority. One thing I like about Bannerman in this section is that he asked the question of where is the limit, where's the line on the civil magistrate and our freedom of liberty. And he basically says, I cannot draw that line. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where it is. Uh, and and he poses wise. the question to the reader. Uh, maybe you can figure out where that line is. But wh- one thing I did like from the civil realm is when he was noting it, he says civil authority is not absolute or unlimited for there is a point where in its exercise it meets its rightful domain of conscience and the short the sword ought to be sheathed and to give way before claims which the conscience pleads conscience on the other hand is not absolute or unlimited either for there is a point where the rights are met and bounded by the rights of the civil authority and that's how he concludes that section and i guess that in some ways sums up uh, what we were talking about well, it could be helpful too, uh, just to look since we've been walking through this, that last sentence I think is important to see this as um, a fairly American approach to um, the, the relationship between the church and the state, because Bannerman will talk about the spirituality of the church, but it looks a little bit different in an American context, because a lot of this is a restatement of Westminster Confession 20, which is on the conscience, but that chapter is actually different in the American version when it talks about imposing of the civil uh, or of, of censures by the church, the original version had at the very end that it's enforced by the censures of the church and by the power of the civil magistrate. And that's taken out in the American version. In fact, the early 
Adoption Act allowed people to take exception to that and to uh, parts of 23 that were in the civil magistrate uh, that they disagreed with. They eventually rewrote them. Um, but this this statement at the end, no religious constitution uh, should be supported by the civil power further than may be necessary for protection and security equal and common to all others, would maybe be something that a, a covenanter would not be comfortable uh, with affirming and gives uh, our uh, our polity a, a bit of a, a different flair, uh, an American uh, hinge to it. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's just kind of interesting, you know, even connotations in the way that sentence is written. Uh, because it seems to suggest um, not that there is a protection of security that is equal and common to all Christian churches, but religious uh, religious constitutions, or you might say, you know, the religious bodies that create constitutions or something like that. And so it's not even necessarily trying to suggest that that this this should be extended only to churches, only to totally not just reform churches or anything like that, but it seems to be uh, that there ought to be a protection and security equal and common to all other religions uh, supported by civil power, which it doesn't it doesn't quite say that, but but it seems to be leaning pretty hard in that or you know in that general direction. Very good. Here's preliminary principle number two. In perfect consistency with the above principle, every Christian church or union or association of particular churches is entitled to declare the terms of admission into its communion and the qualifications of its ministers and members, as well as the whole system of its internal government which Christ has appointed. In the exercise of this right, it may, notwithstanding, err in making the terms of communion either too lax or too narrow. Yet even in this case, it does not infringe upon the liberty or rights of others, but only makes an improper use of its own. Steve, I'm going to I'm going to pass to you again to get us going as we begin talking about this principle. What what stands out to you here? What do you see as the starting place? Uh, yeah, so I mean, this is uh, talking about the uh, the importance of uh, you know uh, unions, associations of particular churches, uh, you know, churches with a big C in that sense uh, to uh, declare uh, who can be a member, and and particularly, I think even more than that. Uh, who can be its ministers? Uh, who can who can teach? Who exercise uh, the the office of, of you know pastor, teacher, um, you know, elder, deacon, etc. And um, you know one of the things that, you know, this is not suggesting, even though this has been argued this way from time to time, I don't think this is suggesting that uh, certainly not individual churches get to do that. I don't even think it's trying to suggest that individual presbyteries get to do that, but rather that this is something that the church, again, a big C, the denomination, the union, the association of all of those particular churches has to do or, or gets to do, you might say, is entitled to do, and that um, we have this right to, as, as, a, as a denomination, I mean, I, I hate to use that because that, that word isn't in this, but as a union of particular churches, uh, that we have uh, the authority to declare those terms of admission. I, um, on the one hand, I would want to be careful that we don't suggest that we can add terms of admission into communion as a member. We can't add things that are not in Scripture. Again, this is not denying what, what will be said la later about the ministerial and declarative power of the church. 
Um, so, you know, we cannot say you have to be a Republican to be a member of the PCA. You know, praise God, we can't say that. Um, we cannot say in order to be a minister, um, I mean, this is actually a pretty interesting qualification that uh, we, we might have to be fighting against, you know, sooner rather than later. Uh, you know, what happens if a, a VCO amendment is eventually adopted where you have to do a background check and then someone decides, well, if you don't have a clear background check, you can't be a minister, you know, even if it was 20 years ago or, you know, or, or you know, whatever. I'm just saying, like, that's not a qualification to be a minister. And so we, you know, we, we, we shouldn't be adding that. Um, but one of the things that it points out that is, that is even if we did that, if we exercise this right, we might err. It says in making the terms of community either too lax or too narrow. But but even if we did that, we're not infringing upon the liberty or rights of others. We're only making an improper use of, of our own. And that's because no one is forced. I mean, my children might disagree when they were younger, but I mean, no one's forced to be members of a PCA church. Um, no one is forced to be a, a, a minister of a PCA church. If someone finds the... Um, the, the way in which we have made the terms of community either too lax or too narrow, um, they, they don't have to belong to our church. There's, they, they can disassociate and go somewhere else. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of, there's a lot that's packed into this, uh, but it's certainly trying to uh, help us to understand who, who determines those, uh, those terms of communion and, and how they are uh, how they are, uh, they, they sort of, you know, uh, filter down into the, to the particular churches. It's an interesting point that the, well, you sort of set up two sides of it, right? That, that there's the, the one side is that the church has to establish these things, but on the other side is that the people who, who choose to join are submitting to them, but only insofar as they choose to continue submitting to them, they can depart, you know, at their leisure, they're voluntarily associated. I remember sitting down with a a man in the church that I served many years ago now. And um, he, he looked at me and he said, I just, I just don't like the way that, that, you know, the, the elders are running things and that the elders are elected in this particular way. And that this is the way things are. And I just, I just don't know what to do about being in a part of this church and we just need to change it. And I said, well, that that's unfortunate. And he said, what do you suppose that I should do if I'm just so unhappy with these things? And he didn't really like what I responded to him with. Cause what I said was that he should leave and find a church that he likes because this is the way that we do things. And he was only voluntarily associated with us. Um, and we weren't infringing on any of his rights by being Presbyterian. We were just infringing on his preferences, I suppose, as long as he wanted to remain with us. Uh, Scott, you you talk about some of this in your notes that you've given us uh, about how some other traditions treat membership. Maybe you have something to say here about setting terms for admission. Yeah, so in, with church membership, and uh, I came to faith in the mainline Dutch tradition, and part of your membership vows weren't merely evangelical in nature, they were reformed in nature. And we had to, when I made my profession of faith, I swore to uphold the three forms of unity as what I believe the, the, the scriptures teach. And I always thought that was so unique, especially moving into the PCA, where um, in many of our churches, there are Baptists, right? If you uphold the three forms of unity, you're not going to be a Baptist at, at my Dutch Reformed Church. Uh, but the PCA, uh, at least historically, has been less stringent. And I think that's part of the voluntary communion, um, as we were just talking. It, it's a little different. Uh, 
Baptists are often permitted to join, um, but they are unable to hold office. That's where the that's where the rub hits for us. And so it, it's I find it interesting how various traditions um, deal with this issue. Um, it's not just you can believe whatever you want and be here. Um, there are guidelines um, that we all make vows to before God in the presence of His people. But it does remind me of a, a situation in my polity class. Uh, in Jackson, um, a guy Waters had, I think, a ruling elder come give us a lecture, and we were talking about um, church discipline and excommunication and all of that. And uh, someone asked the question of, "What do you do with someone who's in the middle of process who just seeks to say, I'm done. I don't want to be a part of this this body anymore, and I want out.'" Uh, and I think the class's sentiment was, "Well, you continue process." Um, but the ruling elders argument was, no, you release them. Uh, you release them for membership because it's voluntary. And not only that, I think its principle is more than just maybe what we're talking about here. It was you can't I, like civilly, uh, the church can fund, find lawsuits if they pursue someone who no longer wants to volunteer be with them. And so I reminded of that, uh, that warning, uh, you, you may want justice <laughs> in, in some circumstances, and for a minister, it's certainly perhaps a little different than a church member, um, but uh, there is a voluntary nature that we must remind ourselves when um, we associate and those who associate with us. Well, there's also the civil realm. I think uh, preliminary principle number two uh, also reminds us that voluntary association applies to the civil government. And in some ways, this is also saying uh, the government can't tell us who our members are and are not. Um, this is, it feels very anti-establishmentarian uh, that uh, the, this voluntary association and that we get to determine who our membership is. Um, and so the, the government also on the other end can't come in and say, no, you have to have this person still as a member in your church. Um, no, the church government gets to decide who its members are and who who they are not. Let's move on to number three, which says our blessed Savior for the edification of the visible church, which is his body, has appointed officers not only to preach the gospel and administer the sacraments, but also to exercise discipline for the preservation both of truth and duty. It is incumbent upon these officers and upon the whole church in whose name they act to censure or cast out the erroneous and scandalous, observing in all cases the rules contained in the Word of God. Steve, start us off again. I just keep throwing to you. I, I you know, it's just because you're here. I'm not used to the other. I'm not used to to having extra people. Talk to us a little bit about here about um, the the representative aspect of of the government that this principle's setting up for us. Yeah, well, um, one of the things I was thinking about and I've often thought about with this is uh, a phrase, uh, an idea that I've heard you know, often that American civil government is based upon Presbyterianism. Uh, and I think that there are plenty of, of uh, you know, comparisons that could be made. But, but one of the dangers of that idea is that you know, we do have representative government in the United States. So I'm in... Florida, uh, the, the great free state of Florida. Uh, I mean, we all elect our legislatures, but but we elect them in the free state of Florida down here and uh, send them off to whether it's Tallahassee or Washington, depending upon you know what office they're holding. And we want them to go to those places and represent us, right? They're, they're representing our interests in those places of civil government. 
And uh, one of the dangers in drawing a connection between the civil government as representative and the the way in which we we also have representatives, right? We have elders, we have elders at session, elders that go to presbytery, elders that go to the to the general assembly, is that it, it's possible, and I've certainly heard this sentiment at various times in the Detroit that that those elders are going to represent, you know, the people, that, that elders are elected to go to session to represent the church. And that is, you know, a hundred eighty degree difference from what the biblical idea of representation is that that elders, uh, pastors, and ruling elders are elected not to represent the people before God. I mean, we're not priests after all, but we are we are appointed to represent Christ to His church. It's a representative form of government, but it but it's the opposite type of representation that we typically see in American government, uh, or that we do see in American government. And so I think that's an important point for us to understand and for people to understand, right, is, is this idea that officers are appointed you know, ultimately by Christ. Uh, this, this gets into a lot of the doctrine of ordination that we, you know, we much later in your podcast, of course, to talk about those things. But, you know, it's Christ who gifts uh, individuals w- with their gifts. It's also Christ who gifts the church with those officers. And so we have to we have to recognize that. But also there's another statement in here that I think is interesting. Uh, I think it's the second sentence that is incumbent upon those officers and upon the whole church in whose name they act to censure, cast out, et cetera. Now, we can talk more about the other pieces, but I'm just thinking about that first phrase, the officers and upon the whole church in whose name they act, that it can almost sound as if the preliminary principle is suggesting um, that by acting in the name of the church, they are in fact representing the church. You know, it, it almost sounds uh, a little fuzzy there, but uh, I was looking at, I was doing my daily devotional in uh, Waters' book, How Jesus Runs the Church, and you know, came across, uh, he makes this reference to a statement that, that, that Thomas Peck makes, um, and, and he says, you know, the power of the church resides in her, it is exercised by officers. Uh, so there's this connection between the power that the church has resides in the whole church. It's, it's not, it, the power of the church doesn't reside merely in officers. It resides in the whole church, but its exercise is carried out by the officers who are elected. And so again, that, that, that power that Christ has given is not to, you know, merely to individuals, but to the whole church. And then it is exercised by those officers. And in one sense, we th- this sentence could be written a different way, right? It is incumbent upon those officers and upon, you know, who act in Christ's name. It, it could say that. Uh, but it also re- reminds us that that power that officers have is not given to them directly. It is given to them indirectly through the election of the congregation they are ordained. And so even though they're gifted by Christ, no man can stand up and, oh, I've had plenty of people try to do this, right? Stand up and say, I'm gifted by Christ to be a teacher. You just need to make me a teacher. And that's not how, that's not how the church works. Uh, you may be gifted and we may test and try those gifts, but at the end of the day, those who will teach, particularly as officers, that they have to have the the approbation of the whole of the uh, of the body which they serve and again that's another 
curlinear principle as well that we're pulling into. Uh, but that's kind of the nature of principles is that they all they all kind of weave together back and forth amongst them. So I thought that was an important point just to bring out both the representative idea, but also the way in which that power flows from Christ to to the officers in the church. Jared, help walk us you, through this idea of of officers and and what they've been appointed to do. It, speaking about the three marks, to big piggyback on what Steve was saying, uh, this seems to be not only a, a preliminary principle but a charge and a challenge to the officers. Uh, when you read through this, you realize the three marks of the church are coming out here in preaching, sacraments, and uh, church discipline. And these are falling on the officers that you are to maintain these things within the church. This is this is a charge and a challenge. It's a grave responsibility to uh, the elders, and they should be very serious about what they're doing. Some some people, I think, approach being an officer in the church as you get this title or this. Uh, it, it's kind of like just an honor, or um, you know, it's a uh, uh, something that you just tout around. But no, it's, it's it's a grave responsibility, and I think preliminary principle three uh, reminds us of that. How do we protect the offices of elder, the office of elder, as it relates to the temptation of pleasing constituencies? I think that's a common thing that our churches experience um, representing these people to the session, and we got to make sure we keep them happy. Uh, how, how do we, as pastors, um, help our sessions? to think differently than the civil realm as it relates to representative leadership. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know necessarily how to do that. I, as you were speaking, I was thinking of, you know, an example um, in, in the, the church I served up in Pennsylvania where um, a, you know, one of the members of our session uh, took a you know pretty unpopular opinion on a matter and, I remember having you know a couple of conversations with him about that, and uh, and you know on one level, uh, you know my thought was probably not incorrectly uh, that you know there were there would be certain people in the congregation that they knew the, the position that he took that they might be very upset with him, and it, it might even be the kind of thing that might cost him you know an election coming up in a few years or whatever. And, uh, you know, to his credit, you know, he said, you know, at that particular meeting, at that particular decision, I had, I, I had to do, uh, I had to follow my own conscience. I had to do what I thought Christ required of me to do in that particular, you know, situation. I couldn't make that decision on the basis of whether or not, you know, the people back at Hillcrest would be happy or not. And, um, you know, I still wasn't happy with the decision he made, uh, but I greatly appreciated, you know, the, the sentiment. And like many things in my life, I was I was greatly edified by his wisdom in that. Um, and and so, I mean, that doesn't answer your question as far as like how do we inculcate that into elders uh, beyond, uh, you know, maybe you know, telling those stories, right? I mean, reminding people of the importance of that, uh, you know, pointing people back to. Uh, the fact that, you know, at the end, I mean, this is, these are biblical concepts, right? On the last day, I'm going to just stand up and I'm going to have to, or, or maybe, you know, kneel and, and give an account for not just, you know, how I shepherded Christ's people in my particular church, but also for the ways in which I behaved and acted and voted in, uh, you know, in Presbytery, General Assembly committees, et cetera. And, you know, it, it's not, 
Jesus is not going to say, well, okay, well, the church, you know, you, you were trying to please the church, so that's okay. He's not going to care. Uh, he's going to care about, you know, whether I was following his word and his law and his commandments. And so um, a, a lot of this is just trying to, 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 to remind people of, you know, the, the genuine nature of that representation that, that we go for as his ministers. You know, we, we go and we minister in his name, not in the name of uh, the particular churches where we serve. Even though we announce ourselves at the assembly, you know, hey, I'm Steve Tipton from Gulf Coast Presbyterian. <laughs> well, I think that's a good place for us to stop. Steve, we are glad that you joined us. We hope you'll come back and join us again sometime soon. As Alexander Campbell would say, this podcast is over. If you're interested in learning more about anything we spoke about, check out the show notes in your podcast player or at polityMatters.org. If you've enjoyed the show, consider following us on Twitter and Facebook at Polity Matters and subscribe in your podcast app of choice. Scott Edberg is a senior minister of Providence PCA in Troy, Illinois, and you can find him on Twitter at S. Edberg. If you're looking for Jared, he's the pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church of Hopewell Township, and he's on Twitter at Brother Nelson. He's also an editor over at Presbyterian Polity, and you can find him writing around the internet from time to time, so be on the lookout. I serve as the associate pastor at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Cleveland, Mississippi. I'm on Twitter at underscore Ben Ratliff and on Sermon Audio under Benjamin Ratliff. Say goodbye, gentlemen. Goodbye, gentlemen. I love that you guys don't know what to do when I say that at the end. I think it's wonderful.